Hey everyone, it is such a pleasure to be here today. My name is Mary Demuth. I hail from Texas, where everything is big in Texas. And hopefully not me, but uh, yes, <laughs> everything's big in Texas. And uh, I just wanted to say hello to you and to welcome um, to all the campuses out there to Blackberry Creek, which sounds like um, a wonderful dessert, Streamwood, Bartlett, and DeKalb. So thank you so much for being here today and what an amazing day it is to have Mother's Day. So of course, as a mom, I'm gonna brag a little bit about my family. So uh, they'll be up on the screens here and we'll get to meet them in just a second. Well, they're not there, there they are. Um, <laughs> Uh, on the left is Julia. She's my youngest. She's in college. It's my husband. There's me, then Sophie, and then the tall six foot four one is Aiden. And he just graduated from the University of North Texas on Friday. And so we have now two off the payroll. <laughs> one more to go. <laughs> so excited. And uh, yeah, those older parents are like, amen, amen, yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is my family and I love them tremendously. And I'm sad that I'm not with them this Sunday, but I'm so grateful to be with you. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this moment that we have, this holy pause, that we can just take this time to hear your voice to be ministered to by you, to um, experience your love, your compassion, and your healing. And I do pray, Jesus, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray all these things in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, so excited to be here. I said that like 75 times, sorry, but I am. And thank you to Pastor Jim for preaching out of 2 Corinthians last week. And we're going to back up a little bit and look at one small passage in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this is from Paul's letter. And before I share that scripture, I have a couple things I wanted to share. So first is this, and... Um, this may resonate with you, it may not, but any of you who have ever been in elementary school who have been chosen for a team during recess, raise your hands, right? Okay, there's a few of you. And I won't make you raise your hand, but I'll do it for the rest of us. How many were chosen last? That would have been me. But here's the cool truth. When God chooses his team, he starts with the people that the world chooses last. And that's the paradoxical beauty of the kingdom of God, that he chooses those who you would not expect. You see this when Jesus is interacting with people in the gospels. He seems to zoom in on the ones who are not seen. He spends time with the Samaritan woman. He looks at the woman with the issue of blood with compassion and engages her and finds out her story. That is our Jesus whom we serve. What a beautiful thing it is to know that he chooses those that the world would choose last. And some of you may feel last today, particularly on a tender-hearted day like Mother's Day. Some of you have lost a spouse who was the mother to your children. Some of you are missing your moms. And there's just a, an ache that will be with you for the rest of your life because she's no longer with you. Some of you, though, are, you have moms and they're around, but you're estranged from your mom and there's a broken relationship there. And so every time Mother's Day comes along, you just have this broken part of you. Some of you have prodigal children 
And those prodigal children are breaking your heart. And so you may be a mom or a dad and your heart is wishing that they were sitting right next to you right now. Some of you have longed to be parents, but you've been suffering from infertility and it's been very hard. Some of you are single and you're longing to have a family and that's all you've ever wanted and you're curious, why hasn't God answered this prayer? Some of you have gone through the horrendous pain of losing a child and so Mother's Day then is a reminder of your loss. And some of you just have a hard time celebrating your parents. So all of us in this room are carrying some sort of grief. And these verses I'm gonna share with you today and I'll remind you again at the end of the service are, are for you. So here's what they say. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm gonna just tell you a little story about my life. And this story, there's a hero in that story and the hero is not me, it's Jesus Christ. I grew up in an unsafe home, a place where I was constantly afraid. I would have nightmares at, at night that there were killers chasing me and that reflected the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. My mom and dad were married when I was present and uh, they soon got a divorce and then my mom met another man that she met um, in a laundromat. She ended up marrying him and that's a little bit of advice for you single people out there. Maybe not the best place to meet someone is in a laundromat, maybe it is, I don't know, but uh, he wasn't the best and uh, he would take apart engines in our um, living room. But the other thing that would happen during that time of my life, when I was about five years old, is uh, there were a lot of parties and there was a closet in our little tiny home and in that closet were some lights and underneath the lights were some very pretty green plants that are now legal in certain states in our nation. And so, the adults would get very stoned. They would have parties and they would get in the circle and they would pass the joint on the roach clip around the circle. And sometimes they would say things like, let's get the little kids stoned. And they would pass it to me. And even in that moment when I only knew Jesus as a swear word, I knew that if I took a hit of that, something bad would happen to me. And it was just like, God, now as I look back, and sometimes you don't discern it in the moment, but you look back on your story and you trace the handiwork of God and I could see him right there just pushing in on me and showing me that taking that would not be a good thing for me. And I would run away from all the crazy adults in my life. And my bedroom at that time was the only way to get to the bathroom, but I was terrified of those adults doing crazy things. And so there was a place in my bed, my bed was stuck against the wall like this, and I would try to hide in that little corner of the bed and try to make myself very small. And those of you who have experienced trauma as children or even as, uh, as adults, you understand this desire to make yourself as small as possible. 
And so that's what I tried to do, but it didn't save me from one of the things that happened to me that year. So I went to kindergarten, and during those days, it was half-day kindergarten, and so at noon, I would come to Eva's house, and she is fondly known by me now as Eva the chain-smoking babysitter, because she's like this the whole time. And the thing you need to know about her is that she flat-out hated kids. (laughs) And so... For those, here's some more advice. So for those of you who are thinking that you want to go into childcare, but you hate children, probably not do that. So uh, anyway, so she hated kids, uh, but she liked the money that the kids would represent. And so one day, very soon after I started coming to Eva's house, there was a knock at the door and these two teenage boys asked if I could come out and play, five years old. And she didn't hesitate. She pushed me out the door. And those boys took me into the woods and they harmed me there. And I remember what happened in that I was traumatized by what they were doing. And I looked up into the tree limbs because I lived in Seattle at the time. So we had these big, huge evergreen trees. And I disassociated from myself. And I just flew up there in my mind and I begged for rescue. And while they were doing what they were doing, I was in a ravine and there were people walking along a trail up above. And I, you know, like when you have those dreams and you're super scared and in the dreams, you just want to yell out and you can't, you're like trying to yell and it's like, "Ah," nothing comes out. That's how it was. I couldn't ask for help, but nobody ever noticed. Sometimes these things would happen. This went on for a year. It would happen in their house while their mother was in her kitchen baking chocolate chip cookies. And my little five-year-old heart was longing to be noticed, longing to be rescued, and it just wouldn't happen. And those boys told me that if I told anyone what was going on, they would kill my parents. And so I was terrified as a five-year-old that if I told that secret, I would cause the demise of my parents. And some of you today are carrying around a secret that you need to let out. And it's desperately hard and I know the fear and I know some of you are even like, oh, why is she talking about this? But there is such freedom in letting out that secret. I don't know why I did not choose to tell my parents, but I think deep down inside of me, I knew that they weren't safe and that oddly, even the chain-smoking babysitter was safer. So I finally, after those boys started inviting others to come along, I knew inside of my heart that if I didn't say something, something bad was going to happen to me. So I pulled Eva aside and I said, I need to tell you something. And I whispered those terrible words into her ear. And then she said five words that would change my life forever. I will tell your mom. And you know, all adults always tell the truth, right? When you're five years old, that's what you believe. You believe that if she said, I will tell your mom, that she told your mom. So the next day, I'm in school. I get to Eva's house. I eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. My mom knows, and I'm going to be protected. The boys knock, and I'm like, it's going to be fine. She opens the door and pushes me out. And in my mind, even though she didn't tell my mom, I'm thinking, Not even my mom cares about what happens to me. No one on God's green earth gives a rip about what's going on in my life. And um, so this continued to happen, and I, I, I finally thought, I cannot go on. And so what I did was I tried to fix it. I tried to save myself. 
which is a really good coping mechanism when you're five years old. Not so great as an adult because you become a control freak. But um, I'm hopefully a recovering control freak. But anyway, I decided I would sleep. So I came home from school, I crammed the peanut butter jelly sandwich down my throat, sometimes tuna fish, and I would run to the other end of the house where her bed was, and I would pull the covers over my head and I would pretend to sleep for three, four, five hours until my mom would come. And thankfully, the redeeming quality of Eva is that she could not be bothered to walk to the other side of the house, and so I had saved myself. And by the end of the year, by God's beautiful grace, we moved away from those boys. But I felt like I had some sort of mark on my forehead where other predators could find me. And I spent my childhood running away from predators. Nobody ever asked what was going on. There must have been evidence. I know that my teacher knew something was wrong, but not one adult was heroic enough to intervene. But thankfully, I was out of that situation. But by the time I was 10 years old, my mom had remarried. So this is marriage number three. And my biological father had become everything to me. Like he was the one that wanted to spend time with me. I loved him so much. I didn't realize until later that he also had some predatory tendencies. And and it was a problematic thing, um, the grooming that was happening to me. But when I was 10 years old, he died, and I felt like my whole world fell apart at that time. So when I became a junior higher, which for all of us was our best time of, the li- of our lives, right? Yeah, wallflower. Um, <clears throat> so during that time, when everything's so awesome, I was thinking to myself, why am I on this earth? And I would look down at my little feet, and they're big feet actually, I would look down at them and look at the square foot of earth and think, why am I occupying this space on earth other than to be neglected or abused? And I started writing poetry about how I didn't want to be on this earth anymore. And thankfully, finally, when I was 13 years old, I had a counselor in my junior high who gave me a hall pass that I could leave at any time. My mom's third marriage was breaking up and I was losing another father. And I was desperately sad and very, very much on the edge. And so I could leave class at any time, go to the counselor's office and cry, cry, cry. Or in Texas, we say boo-hoo. So I could boo-hoo as much as I wanted. And he listened to me. He loved me. He saved my life. And then I went to high school and my friend decided that she wanted to invite me to Young Life. And I didn't know anything about that. And again, I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't even know he had anything to do with Christmas or Easter. I just thought it was Santa and the Easter Bunny. I didn't know about him. And she said, you should come to Young Life. And I was like, okay, what's that? And she said, well, you know, we like, um, we throw uh, balloons at, water balloons at each other and there's shaving cream involved and there's singing and guitars. And at the end, someone says stuff. And I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. And so I went and there was shaving cream and balloons and guitars and songs. But the last 15 minutes, someone came, stood up in front of us and started talking about Jesus Christ. And every single time I heard the name of Jesus, my heart just wanted to leap out of my chest. In fact, if someone had shared Christ with me in that moment, the whole gospel, I would have definitely gladly given my life to him. The last message I heard before the summer of my, end of my freshman year was this, and they were just simply talking about Jesus calming the storms the storm, the big storm, and the disciples asked, who is this that the wind and the seas obey him? 
And that question just came up through my mind and it just stayed with me for so long. Who is this that the wind and the seas obey him? And all summer long, I just kept asking that question. And when I was a sophomore, I went to a weekend camp and, you know, telling this hard story, you're like, this girl's really sad. But um, this is, here's the conclusion, <laughs> the good stuff. I heard about Jesus Christ. I heard the gospel. I heard that he had lived the perfect sinless life, that he was this empathetic savior. He understood. He walked in my sandals. He walked in my shoes. He understood what it was like to be hurt, maligned, betrayed, violated. He hung naked on a cross. What a, what a terrible um, amount of violation that must have been for our savior. Jesus did that for me. And as a girl who was dad hungry and starved for affection, I just fell in love with Jesus in that moment. And I went outside, it was dark, and this is still in the Northwest, and so I went outside to a big old evergreen tree, which itself was a symbol of one of the greatest tragedies of my life. I remember what those boys did to me under evergreen trees, and I sat under this big old tree, hemlock, which is itself a sign of death, and I thought of Jesus dying on that cross, our beautiful Savior, and I, and I said to him, would you just be the daddy who will never leave this girl? And he, he came in, he changed my life, and then everything was perfect, amen. And then I'm done, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's that song, you've only just begun. So um, it was just the beginning of that healing journey. Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That is my story. That's why I share it. It's not about the sadness as much as it's about the rescuer the one who rescued me. Francis Bacon says this, in order for the light to shine so brightly, the darkness must be present. And I've also heard it said that the beauty of redemption shines brighter on a dark canvas. So it really does us no good to try to kind of whitewash the world. It's better if we call evil for what it is. What happened to me was evil. But God's redemption, because it's so gloriously bright, shines all the brighter because of the darkness. So we tell the truth in church, right? We say what happened. We become authentic believers in Jesus Christ who are not afraid to share the dark parts of our story because when we do, the redemption shines all the more. And I'm so grateful for that. I wanna leave you with some tools, and this is for 100% of you in this room. Everyone can take these next three challenges to heart. And the first one is this, it's a joyful choice. The first joyful choice is to be gutsy. Here's what I found in my journey of healing. An untold story never heals. An untold story never heals. It's like a beach ball that you, um, you inflate and you're at the pool and you're pushing it down. And for a really long time, because you're strong like me, right, you work out, you can keep that beach ball under the water. But because it is full of air, it pops right back up. 
And when we have secrets or we don't tell our stories, it's like we're spending our entire lives trying to manage this ball and then it comes up in our behavior. Have you ever looked in the mirror and you thought to yourself, why am I doing the very thing that I hated? Paul talks about it at the end of Romans 7. I do the very thing I don't want to do. Or you made these vows to yourself. You said, I am never going to raise my kids that way. And then you hear your mom's words coming out of your mouth, right? You're like, I can't take them back. And so it's so, you, that's what happens when we try to stuff our stories and we don't deal with them. Yes, because we've heard the theology of 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone, the new awaits. So we just assume, well, then I'm going to forget about it. But what really we need to do is to bring Jesus into that story, share it with the body of Christ with safe people, because the moment that you begin to let it out, it loses its air. Just like that beach ball, if you deflate it, it can go under the water quite easily and you're no longer tormented by the things that you're doing. Let it out, tell your story. College was the time that I told my story and I began to heal, and I probably overshared, and that's what happens. You'll, if you have a friend that has just never told a story and then they start telling it, they're gonna overshare, which is fine. But I just experienced the healing of Jesus Christ because I told a little tiny bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more, and those people that were in my um, youth group and in my church, they laid their hands on me and they prayed for me. So much so that when I finally was able to afford counseling in my 30s, I told my whole story to the counselor and she said, yeah, so how many years of therapy have you had? <laughs> and I said, well, zero, because I haven't been able to afford it. And she said, no, don't tell a funny joke, how many years? And I was like, I, none. And she couldn't believe it. And I, and I racked my brain about it too. And I thought, how is this possible? How could I be okay? And I just attribute it to four years of prayer. You have a resource within this room of people who will pray you back to health. And I am an illustration, a humble illustration of the power of prayer in someone else's life. Some of us think that it is selfish to heal. We think, well, you know, I've got to take care of everybody else. I don't want to work on my stuff because that just takes too much time. I don't want to be narcissistic. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. Well, it's actually one of the best gifts that you can give your family is a healed heart, a healed mom, a healed dad, a healed uncle. That is the best gift that you can give. It is not selfish to pursue healing. It is the gift that you give. If you're single today, it is the gift, your healed heart is the gift you give to your future family. I once met a woman who, whose mother in her 70s had, had finally disclosed this big story, this big secret. And, uh, and she was beginning to get better. And so I asked the lady that was the daughter, I said, would it have been a gift to you if she had pursued healing earlier? She just burst into tears. Think about that. Your pursuit of healing is the gift that you give others. The second one is to be tribal. And what I mean by that is that we need the body of Christ. You cannot heal in isolation, though all of us try. Here's the frustrating truth that I have learned. What wounds you is what heals you. If you have been wounded in negative community, God asks you the hard task. He asks you to walk back into gingerly, to walk back into safe, good community. 
And that is the means by which, the body of Christ is the means by which he begins to heal you. But so many times we don't give others the privilege of being heroic in our lives, right? We would much rather be heroic ourselves. And haven't you ever had that experience where someone's called you up and they said, I'm broken, I need help. And you go and you listen and you pray and you walk away from that interaction and you think, oh, I am so full of joy right now because I got to help someone. Well, if everybody's being heroic and no one's needy, then there can't be anyone being heroic. So give someone else the privilege of being heroic in your life. You want to know Jesus Christ? You want to know him deeply and intimately? Gather with other people. He says this, where two or more, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's not Lone Ranger Christianity. It's not all about you and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus. It's about growing in community. Spiritual growth does only happens in community. Isolation shrinks us. Psalm 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. When we were in France, we were church planters suffering for Jesus on the um, French Riviera. And... Uh, <laughs> As we were, it was actually very hard. And so as we were flying home from being done by being, from being missionaries, I made a determination and I said to myself, self, you should never trust Christians again. Don't be in relationship with Christians, especially not Christian leaders and not Christian women. So that was a lot of people. And I was like, nope, done, not doing it anymore. We are, it's right before Christmas and we are driving to live in the corner of a barn and my name is Mary, so there's cattle and lowing and all that, which is kind of Christmassy, right? We're going, and it actually is, it's not really a barn. I mean, it's a barn, but it's a little apartment in a barn and we're gonna live there. And uh, we get there and I've got my determination, you know, I'm not gonna trust any Christians again. And, and we get there and there's Christmas lights strung up and there's a Christmas tree, and there's cookies on a table, and there is, um, there's food in our pantry, and the beds are made, and our friends are gathered around, and I knew in that moment I had a choice, and I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me, are you willing to jump back into good community? And it was not easy, and I took little tiny baby steps in, but those people were the ones that healed us from the wound of all the hard work that we had done in France. What wounds you is what heals you, but so many times we build walls around our hearts and we think that it's effective. And here's the truth, it's entirely effective to build a wall around your heart. And you can even look like you're interacting with people, but you still have this wall, you're going like this. The problem with that is yes, you'll keep out the pain, but you'll also keep out the joy. And so, it's, it's a brave thing, but to begin to ask Jesus brick by brick, will you take down that wall? Show me some trustworthy, safe people that I can entrust my life to. Super vulnerable, really hard. The hard work of discipleship meets the road right there. Be tribal. And then the third thing I wanna leave you with is be heroic. So I'm a good Baptist, so I've got three points always. And here's the thing. <laughs> We need to be heroic, and, and I, I share my story not to say, talk about all the salacious and sad things that happen. I share it to show you the beauty that God, what he does in our lives. It's so great. I now have the privilege of being the hero 
that I never experienced and never had. And so I can either look back and be like, oh, well, you know, um, all these bad things happen, so this is my excuse for being morose for the rest of my life, or I can do the hard work with Jesus, I can ask people to pray for me, I can work through healing, and then I can ask the Lord to please help me be a part of the solution. And you can be that as well. You can be the mother or the father that you never had. And even if you had no good examples growing up, remember Psalm 2710, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. He will be there for you. You don't have to be awesome or strong or powerful to change the world because when we hear the word heroic, we think of the Avengers, right? We think of awesome people who do awesome things with lots of strength, but actually the gateway into the kingdom and the upside down kingdom of God is always weakness. You see it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, where Paul is talking about boasting about his weakness, that the power of Christ would dwell within him. He's well content with weaknesses, insults, difficulties, and persecutions for Christ's sake. And he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Your weakness is the dance floor for Jesus to dance his most perfect, beautiful steps. And we come into church so many times and we just want to like look like awesome Christians and we want to, you know, have it all together because we think that being a Christian is all about strength and looking right and doing it right. And, and if we have bad things, we hide them, we push them down like the beach ball. But actually, I would just rather you be yourself, authentically you, broken like the rest of us, messed up like the rest of us, but you serve a strong and capable Savior who comes to your rescue so let's revisit the passage we started with at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 21. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. I keep thinking about junior high, you know, it's just such a hard time. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paul is relying heavily on his knowledge of Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 when he writes this. And we see it all through the Pauline epistles where he's constantly pulling the Old Testament back into the new. And I've, I've been doing, I'm gonna be writing a book about Romans. And so for um, 90 days, I'm reading the book of, the whole book of Romans for 90 days in a row. And I'm finding just the power and the beauty of how Paul is able to pull in what, what went on back then with what he wanted to share today theologically. So he, said, he uh, referred to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord said. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord." Since I still am a Baptist, I have three more takeaways. So I guess six is more than three, but, but two groups of three. So the first one is this. When the Apostle Paul speaks about the things that are not, that phraseology in the Greek, it means beneath even the slightest notice as completely and totally disregarded as having no existence. Have any of you ever felt that way? Truth one is this, 
Even if you feel insignificant, God sees you. He takes notice of you. Matthew Henry says this, God is a better judge than us. What instruments and measures will best serve the purposes of his glory? He chooses the ones you wouldn't think. He chooses the weak. He chooses the broken because those people actually will give him the glory. Those people who are weak, it's actually a benefit to us to have a hard story because then we know we need Jesus and we get on our knees and we beg him and we say, please help me because I can't do it. To be like David, a person after God's own heart, we have to have this longing and an acknowledgement that we are weak. In God's upside down kingdom, he empowers the last picked and he empowers the underdogs to shine his glory. William Barclay in his commentary on this piece, he talked about the fact that there are 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during this time. And at that time, a slave was viewed as like a shovel or a hoe, as a tool, a thing and not a person at all. A master could fling out an old slave as he could fling out an old spade right now. He goes on to say, Christianity made people who were things into real men and women, more into sons and daughters of God. It gave those who had no respect their self-respect. It gave those who had no life, life eternal. It told men that even if they did not matter to other men, they still mattered intensely to God. It told men who in the eyes of the world were worthless, that in the eyes of God they were both worth the death of his only son. Christianity was and still is the most uplifting thing in the whole universe. And the last truth is God dignifies the broken. In light of all that God has done for us, let's thank him by living in gratitude, not bitterness. Because of all that he has done for us, we can live lives of, of gratitude. Now, you've, you've been to nursing homes before, and you kind of tend to see people kind of go into two camps. You see the, the, the mom, who the grandmother, the great-grandmother who's so sweet, and people love her, and she crochet, crochets things for folks. And then there's like the lady who's chucking um, mugs at people, right? And we don't want to be like her. We don't want to live our lives as bitter. We want to live our lives in gratitude. So I have a quick little story to illustrate this. There was a little girl named Sarah, and one day her mom uh, heard her say um, that she wanted to make Valentine's for her class. And her mom, who knew that Sarah had been bullied that year and had a hard time, was like, well, maybe, Sarah, we could go buy some Star Wars Valentine's or something um, because, you know, maybe maybe you don't want to make them. And she's like, no, mom, I want to make them for everyone in my class. I want to create these Valentines out of glue and glitter. And so her mom said, okay, sat at the table with her, created the Valentines, helped her with it, and was just kind of heartbroken. You know, that mother's feeling of just wanting your kid not to be hurt. So she sent Sarah off to school and she worried and she was like, oh, I'm just so scared about how, you know, will she be rejected? Will she get any Valentines? I don't know what all that was like, you know, for you. But for me, it was fearful. You get your shoe box, you cut a hole in it, and you're always looking in there. Did anyone put anything in there? Now, thankfully, teachers are wiser and they force everyone to give everyone a Valentine. Um, so we're all loved now. We're all special snowflakes. Um, so she, Sarah uh, comes trotting home and she's skipping and her mom's like, oh good, she had made some cookies because she was worried about the poor girl. 
She comes in and she's just ecstatic. And her mom's like, how many Valentines did you get? Was it great? And she said, oh, well, I only got one from my teacher. And so her mom said, well, why, why are you so happy? What, what makes, why? And she goes, mommy, there were 17 people in my classroom and I was able to give a Valentine to every single one. And that is living with gratitude and not with bitterness, at looking at what God can do rather, rather than the, the deficit of our story. And I'm so grateful that we serve a God who intersects our story, who loves us so much that he looks down on that little girl and says, I'm going to use her to shame the wise. I'm going to take that broken person and, and they're going to be a part of expanding the kingdom because they're going to give me glory. That is the God whom we serve. He deserves all our praise, all of our uh, bended knee, all of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We need you. Would you intersect our stories today? Would you send people into our lives who will be heroic for us and will pray for us, but teach us also to be the heroes that we needed? Change our lives, Lord. I pray for those who are broken today, who this message has touched them tenderly, and I pray, Father, that you would hold their story in the palm of your hand, that you would breathe life into dry bones, that the old has gone, the new has come. Bring healing life, restoration right now on this beautiful Mother's Day for those who are missing their moms, for those who have um, broken relationships with their moms, for those who are... Who are uh, longing to be mothers. Father, just shower your blessing upon them. Love them deeply. And Lord, we promise we want to be more like Sarah. We want to live lives of gratitude because you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We bow our lives, our knees, and our hearts before you. We worship you with everything we have. I pray this all in the powerful, strengthening name of Jesus. Amen.